welcome everybody to this special event. Meet, meet the writer, Rosemary Jenkinson, playwright extraordinaire and short story writer, multi-award winning. Get on to that in a moment. And thank you to Joe Cannon and Dean for welcoming us into the fabulous cultural hub of Blarney Books. Um, Rosemary is here because C21, see the poster on the wall, are here. I'd like just a show of hands, how many of you were able to get to the performance last night? Excellent. Almost all of you. <laughs> That's probably why you're here. And you, I'll just quickly repeat this if you didn't hear it last night. They're here because of a cultural exchange between um, C21 based in Belfast and the National Celtic Festival in Australia, directed by M wonderful Morgan's daughter, Una, which is in Port Arlington. And as I understand it, I think it was Stephen, Stephen, um, Stephen Kelly, the director and director of the company, decided it would be great to perform this play in one other place that was compatible with, um, with Belfast, perhaps. So, as Port Ferry folks know, this place used to be called Belfast. So, that was the inspired decision. So, the Port Ferry Theatre Group, um, operating of the ancient heritage listed, really, um, lecture hall with their old uh, proscenium arch stage there in the hall, they said, yes, we will work in partnership with you. And some other local people came on board too to make this exchange possible. Rosemary has come out as the playwright, which is fantastic, of this play. And Rosemary's the focus, but I should just say also welcome to two other members of, of the company vital members of the play, Christine Clare, who's the actor, was the actor last night and still is, one woman show, and the wonderful Erin Cathcart, who <laughs> is the tech person. It's quite a high-tech show, although the set is all made of cardboard boxes and wooden boxes, um, constructed by a couple of people here in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Ted. Yeah. So, it was a very special event last night and I was so proud and delighted that it was actually packed. It was, um, a few people had to be turned away. So, that was May the Road Rise Up. So, if you were there last night, you would have heard Stephen say that they were very lucky to get Rosemary to accompany them to Australia because she is, quote, on fire at the moment. <laughs> Woo! Hot! <laughs> She is in demand. She's going to, I'm going to stop talking in a minute just to let you know about Rosemary and her fabulous um, achievements just that I know of. Um, as a playwright, she's had 20 plays produced in Northern Ireland and they've been on um, tours very successfully. And she's been the writer-in-resident at Belfast's Lyric Theatre, which is like the national kind of theatre there. She's currently funded, I love this, by the Northern Irish Arts Council as a major artist and she's funded to write her memoir over the next 12 months. I told her she was far too young, young to write a memoir. Oh, no. so sweet. Uh, Rosemary is an exemplary short story writer, highly successful, and her latest book that we'll hear a reading from um, a little later, Catholic Boy, was shortlisted for the EU, European Union, Prize for Literature and also, she's just heard, for the Edge Hill Short Story Prize. So we hope she wins that one. <laughs> um, so there'll be a reading from Rosemary a little later and Stephen's going to help out too with a reading. So as a lot of people attended the performance last night, um, let's just start with that and that you're as the vital part of the artistic team as a playwright. Um, do you mind starting with talking about why you wrote 
this play on on the topic of homelessness. Um, and let's just start with that background to your writing for the yeah. play. Um, well, Stephen and I were discussing ideas and the director. And so we we discussed loads of stuff, addiction, all the issues of now, and we decided to go for homelessness. Uh, I can't really remember the conversation because <laughs> it's like a year and a half ago, or actually it would be nearly two years that we... It'd be over two years that we had that conversation. Um, but I suppose the the starting point for the play was a lot of personal things, like uh, friends of mine who were in debt, um, gone bankrupt. And so there was a lot of that. And there was also my own personal experiences, which was about having a back condition and going mm -hmm. to get employment support and being turned down uh, because they they don't recognize pain, you know, you can't prove it. And if you're, unless you're a real game player and a liar and an exaggerator, you can't get government funds. And there was a lot of things I wanted to explore in this play. Um, so I had the Christine's character undergo a lot of the things that I'd felt and other people that I knew had felt um, on her descent. Yeah. And in barely 60 minutes, it was such a, a rapid but plausible descent from owning her, or owning, renting anyway, a decent apartment, nice boyfriend, having a job she loved, through to actually um, living, sleeping on the streets. And every step of it, I thought, was, was plausible. It was fast-paced, but there was also time for... Um, you know, it was poignant and sad, but also humorous and humane all through. I don't know if others agreed, but that's it was the compression in the writing without feeling that we were being rushed through social issues. So that's I really appreciated that in your writing. Uh, yeah, I know it's very important not to make it sound like, okay, I'm ticking a box here, yeah. I'm ticking a box there. So uh, really trying to get Christine's voice and humanity and her joke and keep that character up mm. uh, was the most important thing. So it doesn't, feels like a real rounded human beings yeah. journey. So you connect, yeah. Yeah, and the sort of ghastly absurdity of the bureaucracy gone mad and we're not quite at that stage here, I don't think, but we a lot of us were relating. Y yeah, we, we are, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. we are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. And the struggle it with is that. a bureaucracy of the whole thing um, and the need to be homeless in order to get enough points to get social housing. I mean, in uh, our country, it's really a pressure on social housing, but they're, they're building them up like mad. But it's just when you have so many incomers, you know, and yeah. people who are elevated to the top of the list and others aren't, there's so much competition and you have to pretend. Again, it's all about lying to beat the government yeah. system. And how dangerous, actually, when you do get accepted for a room in a hostel, how yeah. dangerous that life yeah, was. My I friend, was yeah. uh, she's an actor and she works in a hostel and she brought me in and showed me around and I was just like, and she was saying about locking, you have to lock yourself in at night. It's just dangerous and can't have men coming around at night. You know, a lot of, but but even there's feuds within the hostel between people, you know, so it's tricky. Um, you were commissioned to do this play, or you, it was a collaboration, is that uh, right? Yeah, C21 yeah. commissioned me uh, through Arts Council. Again, we have to wait. We discuss the idea, and it's sort of frustrating because you can't go straight ahead because you don't know if you're going to get the funding. So we have to wait about four or five months. So Whereas I, I just, once I get the idea, I just want to put... But there's no point because if the play can't go ahead, you know, it's... It's a tricky, you have to have a guarantee at the end that we're going to do it and how many people were allowed. That's again the pressure. That's why we had a, a one woman show playing so many characters. Yeah, a um, style of theatre which we all loved and enjoyed. It wasn't like poor theatre because there was one actress who was transforming into yeah. multiple characters and t in multiple environments. Um, I just wondered you, if you don't mind, could you talk about your time at the Lyric Theatre mm -hmm. as playwright-in-residence. 
Oh Sounds yeah. very posh. Yes, yes, I had my penthouse suite built in the lyric theater. <laughs> no, I didn't. I had a little black box room in it. Uh, but uh, no, uh, basically you're meant to, as if you're an artist in residence, you're meant to be there and visible and writing in public, which I don't do. I'm, I can only write in private. I don't sit there in front of people writing. But I pretended a few times, just for the <laughs> lyric. <laughs> um, but it also it's to go support the new playwrights program. I chose some of the new playwrights that have since gone to production and things. So there were things like that, and I wrote a play, but uh, sore point. The lyric didn't accept it. So, you know, you sometimes you think you're getting a guarantee in theatre that you're writing for the... National Theatre in Northern Ireland, but it doesn't work out like that. And it's theatre is so precarious in that way. You you just never know because it can just be a decision, luck, and decision and timing. I mean, I was writing about Brexit, and that's very you know it's an up and down. It's a risky business to write about that. But I mean, I really wanted to, and I they should have done it. But <laughs> yeah, but they didn't. But Never mind. So you've written a number of plays that are satirical and current in quite political. Is yeah, that, right? that one wasn't satirical. I don't have to do satire, but I do a lot of different varieties of theatre, yeah. But satire is, it was my very first play in theatre in 2006 that was produced, and it was a satire. So I kind of feel that's quite a natural voice. But, I mean, Stephen and I, like last night's was more dark comedy, really, you could say. And uh, so we... With C21, I tend to do dark comedies, so it's different. Yeah. The way he did do a satire on Trump. Tell us about the satire on Trump, please. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was a great... It was great fun to write, because <laughs> you go so... You have to go so extreme. You know that people say Trump's beyond satire, but you he isn't. You can still satirise him. You just go much bigger, and, uh, you know... He has, in his office, he has his button for Korea, for the nuclear bomb. You know, you just make it much yeah, that way. And he was meeting Northern Irish, our, uh, the head of the DUP, Arlene Foster, and she was showing him around and showing him Protestant culture, whereas he wanted to see the Catholic culture. So you've got a lot of, we, <laughs> you know, Belfast gives you a great humour in that way. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, he was wild with a gun in a pub, uh, as his Americans are, of course. I just can't. So it was, to you can do those sort of things and then you're actually attacking their gun laws, you know, so everything, yeah, is done through fun. Yeah. And I believe you wrote a play about Theresa May and yeah. had to change it because oh. of current events. Absolutely terrible, yeah. Theresa May, it was last week. She resigned that morning, and I'd been dreading this for weeks and changing it. You know, it was getting closer <laughs> and closer. So, yeah, a total rewrite that day. And, you know, I was – Theresa May cried when she resigned. I cried for th at that time because of the rewrites. I knew I'd have to go in <laughs> that day and completely rewrite the script for the actor, which was very stressful because they're stressed and you're stressed. So – yeah, but I love doing – it's the price you pay, you know, and you have to be available and move quickly, and I like it. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in your processes. Of, you just stay with playwriting for a moment. Do you workshop that with actors on the floor, or do you write the script and hand it over, or a bit of both? Uh, well, I write the script first, and hopefully if we have funding, we get <laughs> – we did for this. We went two days uh, in the country, and we got to workshop it, which was great. But just nothing like he hearing the actor, because it's fine to be in your head, but you need it played back to you. And also, yeah, Stephen will chip in if things aren't quite right. But usually, usually it, we don't do wholesale changes. They're more like tweaks and things, or making a through line more clear. So it's, uh, yeah, mostly the first draft is the play. Yeah. Oh, what a joy for you to work with. Yeah, I think 
we sometimes we end up maybe five drafts in, you know, five yeah. or six before we get a final reverse oh yes, rehearsal yeah. um, uh, rehearsal script. Um, that so that can change, you know, that, that that can change. It helps if you have that development period. Yeah. To work on it, which is very very helpful, but there's just always funding isn't always available for that, you know. So, um, but that takes it to the next level, and it, it helps, uh, you know, get to that point where you're trying to get to with the hat, where that is you're arriving in rehearsals with a script almost ready to go, you know. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's a great uh, it's a great relationship we have with Rosemary uh, at C21. And uh, I think this is our, that play was our fifth collaboration. Then we did a 2019 sixth collaboration, which is just completed. So we may be back here next year with that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that's, it's a great relationship. We know how each other uh, works. Um, you know, she can, she can stick me just about sometimes. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> This is a bit close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could just about put up with her. <laughs> she has her moments. Oh yeah. Um but no it's 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 a great relationship and um, she's she's very talented. We're we're delighted to be associated with her and, and, and have her having her out here with our team has been a great uh, bonus. And um yeah, she was in a bit of a a bad way around the rewrite last week with Theresa May, but uh, she also had Australia to think about two days later, and she hadn't <laughs> started packing. <laughs> so I wasn't really worried about Theresa May. I was worried about <laughs> getting her out here with us. So yeah. she's pulling between me and Theresa. <laughs> There's well, an image. I know. You won, Stephen, over Theresa. You will always beat Theresa. Brilliant. There you go. <laughs> well, maybe we should move on now to your other writing, which is you're probably your main focus, um, your short story writing. Could you start, just tell us about <laughs> your journey into, into writing and writing, choosing short story form? <laughs> well, short stories precede plays. I definitely started off, um, yeah, r that was my first short story published in 1997. So, yeah, and I've got, Three books that I've written now. Aphrodite's Kiss, which Joe got, is um, one from a few years ago. And the latest, which is Catholic Boy, and that um, last year, just last year, um, by Dura Press. Uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think prose is probably my most natural thing. But then when I tried playwriting, I really liked that. So, I don't know, I'm quite divided between them both because they're fantastic to do. Do you want to perhaps move to a reading so we get a little yes. flavour of Rosemary's prose writing? Great, yes. Mm -hmm. There we'll go. The f it's the first story in the collection and it's called Revival and it's about, I'm going to ask, do, does anybody ever, has anyone ever heard of Alex Higgins, the snooker player? Yeah, we got one, two, Oh, we've got a smattering, a smattering. Yeah, I know Australia loves sport, so I was hoping. I know it, it was Cliff Thorburn. Was it Cliff Thorburn was the Australian? Yeah, so I was thinking. Anyway, this character, Alex Higgins, was always around Belfast, and I met him and bumped into him. So this is the start of Revival. How could anyone forget him from the TV screen in the 70s and 80s, hunched, swift, stalking, surveying the green blaze plain, his nostrils quivering, sensing he had his opponent. It was all lean muscle bristling under his suit, an edgy Belfast boy with a barroom pallor, and he'd strike an explosive cue action, a punch winding the audience into tumultuous applause, the trademark whip through the air. He was Alex Hurricane Higgins, two-time snooker world champion and working-class hero. When he was on top, he would strut, preeningly sexual, loose-limbed in the pleasure of predation, and clean up the table in seconds, then back to his seat where, confined and restless, he would light up yet another cigarette. I saw him once more, this time in the morning at the bus stop near my house. Hello, big girl. He greeted me cheerily. He was looking well, all togged up in a three-piece pinstripe suit. 
He had an appointment with the bank manager about a loan. I never asked you, I said. Who was the best you ever played against? The corner of his lips twitched up at the memory. Jimmy White. I was 29, he was 22. I felt him coming at me like a boxer, he said, his shoulders rolling with the ghost of a boxer's gait. Of the current crop, Ronnie O'Sullivan. But he's thrown it away. Ronnie's problem is cocaine and women. I didn't do cocaine. I was maligned by the press. Grievance was setting in again, so I said nothing more to fuel it. The bus came and we got on. Alex insisted on paying for my ticket. A message came through on his mobile and he checked it. My jockey. Tips. Got some surefire winners today. I thought the horses weren't working. Oh yeah, I've lost loads, he said. But I'm alive. I'm still in the race and the bookies are worried. I remembered something about him, how he would let the other players steal the lead so that on the brink of defeat he could stage a great comeback with a crowd behind him inflamed and paled on the conviction of his genius. I watched him alight and he turned and came alongside the bus. Something was perceptibly different. He had a cocky attitude to his step and he grinned up at me and rapped on my window with a speed that made me jump. For a second, strutting along in his sharp cut suit, it could have been the young Alex, and with that scribbled phone number he'd slammed in the black and won the frame, keeping the game alive, and God, he knew he still had it, had me. And I twisted around in my seat to capture a final look at him. His suit shivered under the breath of the enormous sky, and the strut expanded across the deserted acreage of pavement, and I lost him as the bus shrugged on its way. So, and he, here's, thanks, here's another one. Stephen's going to read a little sneaky peek of another called Love History. His name was Liam. He had intense eyes, so intense that they got through to you from the farthest distance. He had a flat a couple of streets away. It was a nice place, fairly modern, blue furnished. He was a builder. I don't know what it was, but I loved workmen. I've always had fantasies about having my own home and getting plumbers, chippies, gas men to call, but especially window cleaners. It was almost worth the hassle of getting the mortgage for that alone. He had a CD player in his bedroom and he switched it on loud. People who like to have sex to music were either very good or very bad. We lay on the bed and kissed, fully clothed. I felt that broad neck writhing under his lips, under my lips, and we began to pull each other's tops off. Wait, he said, and reached into the bedside drawer and took out a condom and then rolled his trousers off. He was incredibly muscular, right down to his tone-wired toes. We went out to the bedroom, or sorry, went out to the bathroom. I took the opportunity of throwing the condom still in its wrapper out of the window. Where is it? He asked when he came back in. Out the window. You're drunk. He took another one out. There was a photo of him in the bedside table on a bicycle with a crash helmet. That's you, I said. Yes, I ski too. I like sports. Do you? The only dangerous sport I do is sex without a condom. You're mad. He softly kissed the base of my neck and I quivered at the warm breath and coolness of his tongue. He kissed me on the lips, then slowly worked his way down my body. It was a tantalizing slowness that, that made me shift and move with almost a desperation to be gratified further. And going no further. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. He had to be persuaded to do that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> you have to buy the book to hear what goes next. <laughs> if, if I had cop copies, you'd have them. But you don't. Don't have copies. No, they were too heavy to bring in a suitcase. 
that um, the publisher of that is is that a Northern Irish? It is. Publisher? Yeah. Yeah. So. Brilliant. Jo Thanks just said Jill. she'll do everything she can to get them into Brownie Point. So that would be wonderful. So both of those little <laughs> pieces reveal your um, exquisite talent for character. <laughs> character through gestures and actions as well as physicality, I think, from just hearing them. Others might have other ideas, but can um, do you always write in a sort of miniature form of the... Of the short story, which many writers would say is, in a way, for them, is is the highest art. It's more difficult than a more expansive form of a novel. I don't know if you agree. But um, yeah, I, d I do agree. Uh, I mean, very few novelists can write short stories. I mean, it's definitely... Um, and I think... Uh, but, but I also think uh, if you write plays, it's very close to short stories. I mean, Chekhov, Sorolf, Brian Friel... A lot of the classics yeah. can do it because you're looking for a brief form. Uh, you you don't spend. You're not a waffler, yeah. and novelists are wafflers. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I think. I mean, to me, short story is a much higher form because you're compacting everything into yeah the conciseness. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm quite brief. And I believe brevity is the soul of wit, so I yeah. that I prefer short stories to novels. I mean, I, ha I did try, but I just uh, I think, yeah, I, I don't I don't have enough digressions you, it for a novel. Yeah. Are there short story writers apart from yourself who you particularly admire or have been influenced by? There's actually a huge movement in Northern Ireland with quite a lot of women writers who are doing short stories. There's Wendy Erskine and Jan Carson right now who are also from the same part of town, East Belfast, as me right now. So there's a lot of us writing short stories. So it's a big... There's a, there is There has been a huge rise in Irish short stories lately and a lot of anthologies out. And so I'm, I've always done short story stories and I think a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon, you know, and they're not necessarily that great, but they think, oh, this is the trendy thing, let's go for it. So, yeah, I do feel that, I mean, it's good for me as well because uh, you get, I never got, I used to, when I did my very first short story collection back in 2004, I gave it to, I wanted a review from the Irish Times and somebody put it into them and they wouldn't review it at all. So you couldn't even get short stories from Northern Ireland. No, oh, oh, no way. So now we're taken seriously. We get big um, prizes and everything. So it, it's so much better because when I was in that EU prize, I was the only short story writer. All the others are novelists. And it's great that you can sneak in with the, the big guys doing the big... Well, yeah, I guess they think they're doing big work. But, you know, <laughs> ours is... Yeah. It may be small in form, but it's big in ambition. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I'm not sure, but writer and publisher friends of mine, Joe would know more, um, have always said that it's much harder to get publication and sales for a short story collection. Is that still so, Joe, in your experience? On the rise? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I oh, think... It's great to hear. We, fi we find that... In England, short stories are so like the whole London press still aren't quite into it, but they're slightly coming around a bit more. But uh, in Ireland, the short stories have always been huge, you know, William Trevor and everything. Oh so yeah. it's always been. Uh, I've Ireland originated that, you know. I mean, it's really the hu the hub of the short story. And your material for your short stories, um, do you just? get an idea from an observation or, you know, is it based on a little bit of experience that you then uh, yeah. build I mean, artistically? Uh, it's not from an observation. To me, that's just the detail around a story. I always write, uh, like, I, I do have notebooks and I'll write, you know, scenes and things, or just like little snippets. It could be dialogue and things also that mm -hmm. help. But, but it's generally just somebody I meet so watch out afterwards. Uh, <laughs> but 
Yeah, a lot of people do tell you your story. You know, just like something. Uh, or, I mean, where do the stories come from? I think, yeah, generally people who I meet and, yeah, family, fa family events and uh, also just autobiographical experiences. A lot of my short stories are also about traveling abroad, you know, so because that really opens your mind to things <laughs> and the mad people you meet there. <laughs> Met a few mad ones already. <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah. So you say some of them are based on autobiographical events. Can you just talk about what's the difference in moving to the genre of memoir writing, which you're yeah. now funded to do? Oh, yeah, <laughs> great. No, um, yeah, I, I found that I was writing so much autobiog autobiography in my short stories that I did want to explore that uh, memoir. And also, I suppose my parents died in the last couple of years, you know, within a short time, and that really, you really start looking at what made you with those two events. That was kind of the the propulsion into memoir. Uh, and also, yeah, I suppose I had a lot of bad health uh, with my back, and I d didn't know if I would ever recover and things like that. So I spent, a, I'd spent a lot of time in my bed wondering about, playing about my life and how the choices I'd made and, you know, maybe some regrets and, and some also good good things I did. But I think, yeah, it puts your life in perspective. You have to look back for that, and I'm at a point where I can look back, whereas I could never have before, and it was all fictionalised. And also, I mean, another reason, of course, with my parents dying, then I've got no reason to offend anyone <laughs> uh you know so i'm free in that way because it is the one thing about memoir is that it's so difficult to put yourself you're out there totally unadorned this is what happened do you look like a boaster do you look you worry about what you come across yeah. as so i'm finding I've, I've actually completed it and it will be published next year but i might actually edit might be you know I might have some sort of, oh, my God, have I said that? You know, it's pretty shocking. You know, if you put some shocking stuff, yeah. But it has to be. A memoir has to be. So you have to be brave to put yourself out there. Because otherwise, what's the point? Actually, one of our um, beloved and, and brilliant comedian, comic actors, um, Magda Shabansky, did a, a memoir that was... Um, has been extraordinarily successful, and she, um, I was, I heard her s say some similar things. Her nervousness before she, it was published, um, yeah. and again, it was that critical point in her life. I know somebody. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have written memoirs and they won't actually publish them. They just have them in waiting for the, yeah. the people who they've written about to die, which is <laughs> <laughs> really dark. Is it? Imagine you're waiting. It's like, please, is this going to happen soon? You could, uh, you know. Yeah. And then there's the ethical issues, which even... Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's who you include. I mean, the, you know, it, it's tricky. I, I'm just not going to tell anyone I'm writing about them <laughs> until it's, it's out there. No, uh, I, I mean, of course, you change names and make change events and things a bit. Well, even though you're telling the truth, y the names are important. What, do you have siblings? Oh, siblings, yeah. I have a brother. But the mm. very good thing about my brother is that <laughs> he never reads my work, isn't interested, doesn't care. <laughs> and he lives in South Africa, which is the other side of the world. So uh, I, I feel, I feel, yeah. In fact, I mean, my, my memoir or the publisher was telling me, your brother doesn't feature enough. Uh, so I've had to write more about him, and of course you don't want, he's the living one, and you don't want to, but it has to be done, but yeah. uh, I think he'd be fine. I think he'd be fine. Yeah. I, he'll never know. He'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I keep saying. <laughs> Rosemary, you make your living from your writing fully now? Yeah. You don't have to drive a delivery van <laughs> for Tesco? <laughs> no, fortunately not. Not that I ever did, but I've had, yeah, a lot of uh, jobs. I wrote about, but 
No, I, I can't just, this year is great with the Arts Council and commissions from C21 always help. Yeah, so, yeah, you can't, but only by having a lot of different, doing short stories. And I also teach a bit of creative writing. You know, you do what you can, yeah. don't you? Well, you, everyone in the arts does, don't yeah. they? We patch together. We do, we do. Yeah, and I can see, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can see why the playwriting and the collaboration with C21 or other yeah. theatre companies would get you out into the world and That's right. rather and than just in your head. Playwriting is book. sometimes a bit more lucrative a bit than um, it can be. A b short stories obviously aren't, and that's a problem, but uh, there's a lot of festival readings and you get paid for them, which also helps. So, yeah, so things are going not bad, not bad. How's the, the funding situation for artists beyond, well, across the arts in Northern Ireland, are you feeling doom and gloom at the moment or is it? Increasingly, <laughs> I think. No, we've been cut year on year. Uh, so um, that's why our la my last play with C21 actually had a protest against arts cuts uh, <laughs> featured in it. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so yeah, it was um, uh, a woman escapes from a care home and does graffiti on a wall with her arts therapist. <laughs> about the arts cuts um, to save his job. It's about a guy who lo is losing his job from work in the arts. So obviously that's something that we're all aware of. But uh, yeah, it is something, particularly in theatre, because theatre needs so much money uh, for the technical aspects mm. and the cast. So it, it's, it, I don't mm. mind so much mm. in short stories because there's not a lot of money in it, but I do care about theatre being cut. And is your sense that theatre can be a force for sort of social activism or raising awareness? About yeah, very theater? much so. I yeah. think it's much better than... Uh, I have less social issues, I think, in the books. It's a less political medium, uh, writing uh, short stories or novels uh, in general. But uh, c because it connects right out to you in the audience at a that moment, and you feel the collective power, which... Uh, books are individual, so it's a, it's a different yeah. dynamic, and I feel that energy in an audience if you connect with them on a on something political. Yeah, yeah. that's a great way of putting it. Because um, we've probably only got about ten minutes left, uh, would you mind answering questions if there are any from? If there are here? any, <laughs> I'll just keep throwing them. No. Questions or comments? I'll just repeat oh that. Yeah, Who are the rising sh stars of playwriting in, our in Northern Ireland? And has oh. Rosemary facilitated their careers Good with one. a mentor or whatever? Yep. The next generation. Great question. Yeah. Uh, well, there probably isn't enough money for a next generation <laughs> of playwrights at the yeah. minute. Uh, but, I well, I did in the lyric, definitely, uh, the girl that, I helped choose to be the, um, or in the Playwrights uh, Festival. She had her production last, actually I was there two weeks ago. So yeah, so she's rising high. Uh, so she would be the only person, usually as a playwright, you're not part of a community. And another thing, I have to be honest, we are competitive as hell because there are so few slots. And, um, there's a lot of, I mean, I've had, I know we had uh, this thing about, there was a thing about female playwrights and we wrote, we kind of clubbed together and that was a great thing. So actually I did get to know a lot of female playwrights through this organization called Waking the Feminists. And we kind of clubbed together to get women's voices heard. So that is, that was some, in some way that we helped each other because we raised each other's profiles. And that's great, uh, but but after that, and actually we got a lot. The male playwrights didn't like it at all, and said that you know what, it, you should be with us. We should all be together <laughs> fighting the system of, you know, the theaters. So there was a lot of you know you get a lot of, but it's only because playwriting is competitive that it's like that. It you're pitched against each other, and you're jealous of each other, and it's just. That's the way it is. 
Definitely every woman for herself. In the end, it is. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I, I try not to try not to be bitchy about other people's work because there's so much of that sniping, and it's usually just jealousy. You know, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Although sometimes you feel, why did they get in that position? Mm. There is so much because there's a lot of schmoozing in theatre. There's schmoozing. Ah, uh, you know, it's <laughs> sickening sometimes, and you have to push yourself away from all that. Mm -hmm. um, have you got another question? Yes. Oh, right. Or is the script, the play script, available oh. um, to well buy actually or online? Yeah, it, it is. I put all my scripts on the Irish Playography, which is Irish Theatre Institute, and they do e they do e plays basically so it that is and it's a really good system because the writer gets half the money oh so actually great. i really like it um but yeah it's, it's that's an amazing script yeah yeah that's that's the way um i, I mean you wouldn't get a public because i'm northern irish and we're in a small small theatres, well, usually the Lyric, but we're not on the main stage, it's impossible to find a publisher in London who would take it on. You know, that they marginalise us actually quite a lot, which is really annoying. You know, you do feel like that, that yeah. you're yeah. The, outer, the outer circle of theatre. What part of... Oh, yes, go to... You travel <laughs> to Port Arlington. It's going to be performed again. Stephen, when you're writing the play, are you aware of the technical requirements of performing it, or is that separate? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's shaking his head there. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't. No, I do. I do think of um, how I write down directions. A lot of a lot of playwrights don't even. It's the kind of modern thing that you just write the dialogue and don't bother with the directions. But I do think uh, I do have an idea, and I often put. Yeah, the music that I want and those, maybe even lights fade, I might write in or something. I, I will have an idea in my head, but it's never a specific, it's very vague, it's not specific, and that's where Stephen will come in. And he can change, if, if it doesn't work, there, there was the time, um, or with transitions I'm not good, I can't work out in my head how, if an actor leaves, you know, should I start with that same, the next scene with a different actor or that same actor? I don't really think of that. It's more just about the dialogue. I'm concentrating on the dialogue yeah. all the way. So yeah. it's kind of there, but not. Stephen will take control of that and change where needs. Yeah. yeah. And that's where it is always such a collaborative art form. Yes, those yeah. are the bits where the production team come in. Uh, yeah. Very important, yeah. So, yeah, and the physicality of of um, <laughs> our the, the performer. That's right. The actor, um, which was just a vital part of the meaning of the of the play. You know, if I couldn't imagine that being performed. Yeah, because I mean, the monologue. Yeah. When I write the monologue, there's no directions. So everything is about the production and the actor and what what the director and actor think. So. I guess just on that question in this production in particular because it was such a visual thing as well alongside the writing because um, initially when we talked about the homeless thing and looking at that theme and, and, and uh, potentially taking a piece out, uh, we didn't have, correct me if I'm wrong, any audio visuals in our mind early on. No, not no, at all. There was nothing in our mind early on at all. So I was, I was inspired by a piece I'd seen um, it was actually in Valencia, in Spain, about a year, 12 months before that. Um, these guys were on stage and they did something with audio visuals that just, just blew, blew us away. And it was all up close and it was very in your face and it just kind of, it kind of inspired me. So I kind of dabbled with that a little bit and then got the set designer and asked her about the audio visuals and what, what other way could we do that. And then she then came up with the idea of um, uh, projecting on cardboard um, 
because it was a cardboard city around homelessness. So it was tying this whole thing in, and then it started to evolve, and, and it's always evolving. You know, and then if you can add different disciplines to that, it makes the whole um, project, you know, go to a different level. Um, but certainly collaboration is key on, on a project like that, you know. Time for just one or two more questions only. Yeah, it was exactly about the border situation. And because I knew... It was scheduled, originally the lyrics said they would do it, they would consider it for the 29th of March, so it would be on Brexit Day. Okay. So, of course, the, as that came, the, the problem was that basically the play was set on the Irish border, and it was about a guy and his daughter, a farmer and his daughter, who took in a Syrian refugee coming, uh, trying to cross the border, but there was a hard border at that time and nobody was allowed to get him across and because violence was breaking out. So I was imagining, basically the play was about my imagination of what a hard Irish border would be like. So it wasn't specifically political because I knew who knows if Theresa May is going to be there a year ahead. You know, you, you, so it was kept vague. Uh, so even though I say it's a Brexit play, it's actually an Irish border play, backstop, basically. But I think the reason also it didn't get produced was because uh, there was a lot of talk of maybe having a border down the Irish Sea. And so things tilted. It looked less likely that there'd be a hard Irish border. All, all over the past year, it's been, will we have one? Won't we have one? Will we have one? I still think the play is relevant because the hard Irish border is still on the table and we don't know. Uh, but, you know, sometimes theatres want a sure thing that it's a sure issue at a time. And those, it's difficult, it's very difficult, but I think they should have done it anyway because it wasn't purely Brexit. Irish border is a big thing, topic right now, I yeah. think. And yes, Anne. Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually I know where I'm going. I have an image of an end or something. It's an image, it's a strong image of a person who is maybe in struggle or some, or they're going to have an idea that is illuminating. Usually it's about somebody who suddenly realizes something. And that is what a short story is. It's a revelation yeah. in somebody's life. Yeah. And that, that's what it is to me. Yeah, just that. Moment. I mean, I know there's all those things. Uh, the arrow in flight, Mary Laban calls it. Yeah. There's a lot of people call short stories a lot of things, but to me it's just a revelatory moment and something beautiful and individual that just happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know how I get there, but I also have notes on... I have notes about the atmosphere, and I must know whether it's winter or summer. That's something that really helps me because either it's a darker, wintry story or a brighter, you know, it really informs the story. So weather is incredibly important for me, yeah, yeah in a story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we, we better wrap at that stage. Um, thank you so much for sharing your, well, your creative process and your writing life. Um, in all its forms, it's um, it's fantastic to have heard that today, well, Rosemary. Kate, it's a pleasure to be here in and Port Barry, just and, and in Joe's bookshop. It's beautiful here. <laughs> nobody can, yeah, nobody could imagine this so colourful yeah, and vibrant. It's, it's great. And thank you, Stephen, for your illumination of the yeah. point of view as well. Um, it, uh, we can't um, we can't have signed copies of the. The Catholic boy, <laughs> but Joe's going to work on it. So could could what? Oh, what? I've, I've Australians do that. I've <laughs> lost out on thousands here, thousands. <laughs> I, that could have kept me going all year. <laughs> and now I'm impoverished. <laughs> oh dear. Well, we'll just have to. I have to get a crate sent to you. Uh, an airlift, an airlift of books. <laughs> Make sure they're all signed.
is it available as an ebook? I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it is only hard copy. It's not on Amazon or anything. It's available through my publisher in tiny in Connemara, but they're very good. They're very good at promoting things um, as well. Um, but well, Dura Press, which is dairy. It's from yeah. It means dairy. Yeah. D O I R E. I R E. Press in Connemara. Connemara. So yeah, it may be possible you could get one sent. Joe, yeah. Well, you're putting her on the spot. That Go is on. Such a I'm in my Tesco van on a pooliner, foot to the floor, tearing up the tarmac. Well, not quite. The van's that filled up with food. The mud flaps are dragging. The point is, I feel free. I can forget about Ryan. Radio on, blasting out some popping tunes. White van man beat Polonius rave. This pink neon woman flashing in his cabin. Big pervy pig, look the other way. <laughs> Pull up at a big house on Cave Hill. Rave Hill, by the looks of it, the amount of skirts I've ordered, and Tesco's finest ready meals that wouldn't fill the back of your coop. Pull out the crates, heavy as a fat arse heifer, <laughs> and, <laughs> and lift it up to the front door. Does this keep going? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much to... Christine and Stephen and Aaron and Rosemary. Thank you.